Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Hello, good morning. Andre here, lead pastor of the city. It's always so good to have you join us for online gathering. Happy New Year. Uh, this is our first service of 2021. We've just come back from a two-week uh, break as a church, and so it's so good to be reunited with you in this manner uh, in this new year. So happy, happy new year. Trust that uh, your year has uh, gone off to a good start. Many of you have just signed up for new gym memberships or have gotten on board a Bible reading plan, a year in Bible reading plan. And so all this to say kudos uh, on your resolutions. I pray that you will stick through with it uh, for the rest of the year. As you are aware, we are in phase three as a nation and uh, with that comes certain easing of restrictions. Uh, we are now able to uh, congregate in groups of eight for social gatherings. And so some of your bigger families, you're able to go out for a nice meal in a restaurant. And as a religious organization and a church, we are experiencing some easing of restriction as well. And so, for example, we are able to congregate in larger numbers in church venues. Uh, and we are also able to have our live performances, live worship, live music uh, in these venues, uh, with the exception of our not being able to sing as a congregation as yet. And so with all these easing of restrictions, uh, we have uh, done some planning and done some uh, you know, uh, surveys and asked around and uh, prayed and sought uh, God as well as members of the community. And we are making a decision as a staff team to reopen the doors of our church uh, next month. And so on the 28th of February, we'll be having our first live service here in TPI. And of course, we'll be opening the church up in phases. And so our first service on the 28th will be a smaller number of congregants with perhaps limited activities. And the idea here is for us to ramp up over time to having more people in the hall and potentially multiple services. We'll make available all the information for you with regards to booking of seats and all that kind of stuff on our website in the weeks to come. Now, these services uh, will take the place of a pre-recorded Sunday online gathering, much like the one you're watching now, and we'll be broadcasting live from the location onto our social media platforms. And so if you are unable to come to a physical service, you have the option of watching it from home. So all this to say, I'm really excited for our church to come back together physically. One of the values that we've come to appreciate in this time of being distanced from one another is the power of small group ministry and also the power of being present in our homes to love, to teach, to disciple each other, our kids, and so on and so forth. And so these values are important. We want to keep it intact. But it's also in this time that we have a renewed hunger, passion and desire and appreciation for the corporate gathering. God indeed does marvelous, glorious things when we come together. There is a kind of blessing when His people come together in unity. And so I'm super excited for all of us to come back here in this hall to seek God, to contend, to worship, to pray, to serve, to love one another. And so I'm excited that in 2021, we'll be coming back together physically stronger in the power of the Spirit. Excited to see you in person. Now, as mentioned, this is our first message of the year. We've just come out of a two-week break. 
as a church. And typically with first messages, our pastors and church leaders would use this as an opportunity to do some vision casting, to perhaps share some of the initiatives and plans they have for the year. And wow, what a lesson to learn uh, even through 2020 that plans, that strategies, uh, they have to be dynamic, flexible, and sometimes things just don't work out the way you desire or you want them to. Uh, a verse that perhaps sums up uh, my pastoral learnings in 2020 is that verse in Isaiah that goes, God's ways and his thoughts are higher than ours. You know, Isn't it so true? And I pray that, uh, and I prayerfully hope that you have come to somewhat of a similar conclusion uh, in your heart as well, that indeed God's ways, His thoughts are higher than ours. We need God. There is so much that we can do as human beings. There is a limitation to our ingenuity, to our strength, to our resolve. We need God. We need to see the way He see th sees things. We need His Spirit to empower us by His grace and by His mercy. We need God, His Spirit, and power so desperately. And it's with that that I've been praying uh, you know, a prayer like this, you know, for my own life, but also for our community. How can I, in 2021, lean into God in a greater measure? How can I, in this year, uh, you know, lean into His grace, His mercy, His kindness, to lean not on my own strength and understanding, but instead to lean on God? It's paradoxical almost that for the Christian, maturity looks like leaning in, depending on God more, as supposed to being independent of God's grace, mercy, and power. And so, how can we as a church mature into dependency in 2021? How can we as a church mature into leaning into God wholeheartedly with every fibre of our beings? And that's the vision that I hope for us to lean into this year, even as we seek to follow Jesus in our world today. How can we lean into what God is doing? And it's with that that I'd like to open up this message. Uh, not just that, open up this year, 2021, with reading to you a passage of scripture from 1 Peter chapter 4. And I've entitled my message today, That You May Pray. That You May Pray. Let us read God's word together and open up this message with a time of prayer. Reading from 1 Peter chapter 4, starting from verse 1, it says this, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless while living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Verse 6, For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they may be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Verse 7, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind, so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should also use whatever gift you have received to serve others, as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. 
If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray as we begin. Father, we thank you for your words of Scripture. Lord, we pray that even as we read and try to understand your words today, that we won't do so in our own strength, through our own intellect, but your Spirit will be present in our hearts, in our homes. Your Spirit will indeed lead us into all truth. And so this day we yield to you, Spirit of God. Come Holy Spirit upon our hearts and upon our homes this day. Lead this time of teaching, lead this time of study, we ask and pray in your name. Amen. Now, it is in my view, uh, pastorally, that First Peter, this text that we just read, this entire book uh, in the Bible, is the most crucial book to study, especially in a time of crisis, especially in a time we are experiencing right now, one of disruption and perhaps some form of disillusionment entering into our world because of the themes covered in this book. First Peter has an assumption of Christians living as a kind of exiled cultural minority trying to follow Jesus in the midst of persecution and oppression and resistance. And I love that Peter opens up this uh, book, this epistle, with addressing his audience as the ones who are chosen and exiled. Think about that. He addresses his audience as ones who are chosen and yet exiled. Two seemingly uh, differing realities coexisting together in a beautiful symphony. And that is what the people of God are to be in our world. We are exiled. We don't belong to this world. We are in many ways living in a host culture that is different from the kingdom to which we are a part of. We are exiled, uh, facing a kind of opposition because of the way that we have chosen to live. We are exiles. And yet at the same time, we are chosen. We are beloved by God. His favor is upon us. His grace, His kindness is upon us. He knew us before the world began. He formed and knit us into existence. We are chosen, beloved by God, yet exiles in the world. That is the people of God. Now, while we as Singaporeans have a whole lot of religious freedoms, don't we? You know, we have a whole lot more religious freedoms than most of the world. While we don't face a whole lot of persecution and opposition, it is my observation uh, that the more secular uh, our societies become, the more privatized our faith is demanded to be. The more secular we become as a society, the more we are told to keep our faith, our practices, our views, our values, our opinions private. And it's especially as the world takes on that kind of trajectory that we need to grow into this vision of being exiles in the world, of being a people who are set apart for the purposes of God, who are different and distinct from the rest of the world. We need to read this, a text like First Peter in order to capture such a vision. So increasingly so, we must learn how to live as exiles. And one of the key themes of First Peter is hope and Christian conduct in the midst of persecution, in the midst of opposition. Peter likely wrote this epistle in AD 62 or 63, and this was right before uh, you know, the, some of the most intense 
persecution of Christians was recorded in human history. It was right around the time of Roman Emperor Nero. And Nero, uh, historically, was said to have devised the most grotesque of executions for the Christians. He had a deep hatred for the people of God. It was said that he would cover them in animal skins and leave them out in the arenas to be torn apart by wild animals. It was said that he would take Christians, douse them in tar, and put them up and light them on fire to serve as human torches to light up his dinner parties. Nero was incredibly evil, and Peter was writing to Christians who were living in the midst of this horrendous, horrific persecution from this evil emperor. And so it's with that as a backdrop, intense persecution, that Peter addresses the church. Peter offers hope to persecuted Christians and guides them with practical instructions. How do we conduct ourselves? How do we live in the midst of this? Now, I don't know about you, whether you know anyone who is elderly, who uh, has had a ton of life experience uh, that you would love to glean and learn from, whether you can think of anyone who's a bit older that you might go, man, if I could only get five minutes with this older person, I will ask this person like, how would you do this? Why would you do this? What's the biggest regret? How would you uh, conduct yourself? What would you do if you're in such a situation? And I wonder if you can think of a person like that. And in some sense, this is what we get with Peter. Peter at this point uh, was elderly, he was older, he had a ton of experiences, he had high points as well as regrets in his life. And now I believe that as a church, if we could somehow invite the Apostle Peter to speak to our church in the midst of what we're experiencing, he would give us the same encouragement that we're reading from this epistle, that he would instruct us in the same manner. This is how you're supposed to live. This is how you're supposed to conduct yourself in this time. And so I want you to read this text, not just as biblical teaching, not just as things that we exposit and we try to glean some truth from, but read it as an exhortation, as an encouragement, as instruction for how we are to live in this present age. And so for today, I'd like to present this text to you in that regard. Now, we just read a whole ton of scripture. It's super lengthy, and I believe that we'll do a whole lot more work with the text in the months to come. But I'd like to zone in for today on one verse in the entire text. And that is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. It says this in God's word, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind, so that you may pray. Now, I had a great two weeks uh, off, I can be honest with you. I read a whole lot of books that were non-Christian. I read a bunch of biographies and history books and stuff that I love. I picked up golf in the two weeks, and so I've been going to range, loving all of that. But if I can be honest, a good chunk of my time was uh, just baby prep work. You know, we bought a bunch of furniture, we put it together, we set up the nursery, bought clothes, washed clothes, and got it all set up. And, uh, you know, Amy is due in some two weeks, and so we are in countdown mode, ladies and gentlemen. We know she is coming, we just don't know when. And so our bags are packed, we are in this kind of like anticipation mode, just waiting for our baby girl to come onto the scene. Now, this time of waiting has done more in tutoring me about God, His kingdom, and His return than I could possibly imagine. Just in the case, as is in the case with my baby, you know, it's certain that she's coming. It can happen anytime. 
And yet at the same time, it does not mean I can forego all the responsibilities of my life and just wait. But I know she's coming. I know she's coming soon, any time now, yet I'm called to be responsible, present in my work, in my world, in my family. This kind of liminal space, transitional kind of space, is our time on earth. The end, as Peter puts it, is near and it is ever so certain. And isn't that line, the end is near, something that rings truer as days go on by, right? In light of what we have seen in last year and tragically in light of what we've witnessed in this week with what, whatever's happening in our world today, isn't it so true? Isn't it, doesn't it ring? Doesn't it have a kind of resonance in our hearts when we speak of it this way, that the end indeed is near? It makes sense when we consider the events of our world today. But him in saying this, in the midst of crisis, however severe, we have to understand that the greatest crisis that we are facing as humanity is not an economic one, it's not a political one, it's not even a health one. It is an eternal one. It is an eternal crisis. Look at how Peter starts off with the verse. The end of all things is near. Meaning to say that there is an end to life on earth. Life does not go on in perpetuity. And the end is closer than you think. History has a point that is moving toward, and that is the second coming of Christ, where he comes to establish true and lasting justice. The Bible speaks of that day as one that is great and terrible. I believe that it will be great and glorious for a portion of humanity who have sought to follow Jesus wholeheartedly with their lives on the earth. But tragically, it would be terrible for the other portion of humanity. It is a great and terrible day. So what Peter is saying, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of opposition, in the midst of darkness, be reminded that the end is near. There will be an end, a finality to sorrow, pain, darkness and justice but there is also an end a finality to life itself to the way you conduct yourself in the world there is a finality to it be aware that there is an end author and theologian scott mcknight spends this reflection in response to this verse he says this there is much that needs to be done to bring this text into our world because our world has almost no belief in a divine end to history. In fact, Christians today seem to have lost much of their moral nerve about the end of history climaxing in a judgment that would decide the fate of all people. Such ideas are clearly found in the Bible, but they have sometimes become an outright embarrassment to Christians. What once drove Christians to look forward to final justice and impelled them to holy living has dissipated today into a feeble idea that somehow through better methods, better techniques, better therapy, better self-development, better science, and better computer know-how, the world is actually getting better. Now, history notes that crisis has the ability to change how we live collectively as a society. In World War II, when war broke out, lives were completely changed. Women went into the workforce for the first time. Factories that once were used to make appliances were now making weapons and bullets. 
9-11, September 11, completely changed the way we travel. If today you travel and you struggle to put on your shoes while waiting to be scanned or after being scanned, that is a result of the crisis of 9-11. Our world has been deeply impacted and in many ways changed as a result of crisis. And for many of us, we look at these events with some form of chronological distance. These things happen way off. But look at our world today. Look at what has happened as a result of COVID-19. We wear masks everywhere we go. I have 20 masks. I have masks of all kinds, all colors, all fashions for all kinds of outfits. We wear masks everywhere we go. We are washing our hands like never before. We have to scan in in order to enter a shop. Whole industries are pivoting towards having a digital presence and travel may not be normalized for years to come. Crisis has the ability to change the way we live collectively for better or for worse. Now, let me ask you a question. If all of human history is leading toward a day to which all of us will stand before God and give an account for our lives, then what adjustments are we making as the people of God, as the church, in light of that greater crisis? Jonathan Edwards, the famous preacher, once said, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. As if to say, Lord, make eternity the lens to which I view the world. All my interactions, all my deeds, all the things I give myself to, let it be through the lens of eternity. What a prayer to pray in our time, in our day. Tim Keller, commenting on that passage that we read in 1 Peter, says this, The world says, if you live as if the end is near, you're crazy. Do you want to know what the paraphrase of this text is? It could be translated, if you don't live as if the end is near, you're crazy. Only if you see the end is near, do you get sane. How could this be? It's really quite simple. If there is a God, if there are moral absolutes, if it's really true, therefore, there will be a reckoning. And if there's going to be a reckoning, to live as if there won't be a reckoning is crazy, is crazy. And so in light of what we've just read, in light of what we just heard, how then do we live in a different way? What are some adjustments that we can make in our life in response to uh, really the, the signs of the end, this time that we're living in? Peter goes on in that text to offer us three calls to action in view of this. First, he calls us to be sober-minded. There's a call to sobriety. He says this, Therefore, be of sober mind. Now, we don't talk much about sober-mindedness in our day, do we, right? I've never heard a person in response to how they're doing spiritually go, uh, yeah, I'm just working on being sober-minded right now. I'm just trying to cultivate the value and the spiritual characteristic of sober-mindedness. No, we don't ever talk like that because it's so uh, far removed from our language, from the way we operate and think. But in the pastoral epistles alone, the Apostle Paul gives 10 exhortations to people of God, to believers, to be of sober mind, to be sober-minded. In some sense, the realization that the end is near, persecution and tragedy, comes as a way to bring us into sobriety, 
to, uh, if you can imagine, have cold water splash on you right in the morning to awaken us to what truly is happening. The word uh, they're used in the Greek uh, for sober-mindedness means uh, to keep sane. It's the alternative to being deranged or manic. It's the uh, idea of expressing and exercising self-control. It is the opposite of living in frenzy or madness. Interestingly enough, in Mark chapter 5, when Jesus encounters the demoniac, this man who is possessed by a whole bunch of demons, uh, and Jesus ministers to this man, and he goes from uh, being crazy and frenetic and mad, uh, being out of his mind to being of sound mind, of right mind. That is the word that is used to describe uh, that the Bible uses for this idea of sober-mindedness. And so picture this, the demoniac, frenetic, fren- uh, frenzy, manic, mad, running around, cannot be around anyone. And then, sitting at the feet of Jesus, fully clothed and receiving instruction from Him. That is what it means to be sober-minded. And so the exaltation is this, God wants us to move from intellectual and emotional frenzy about our woe and worry, anxiety, this frenetic life that we've built for ourselves, running around after things, to sober-mindedness, to sitting at His feet, being clothed in righteousness and receiving instruction from Him. Now, all of us, I would assume, earnestly desires a sober mind. We read a text like this and and go, man, I want that. I want a sober mind in the midst of the craziness of the world, I want a sober mind. But because there are many temptations and alternatives to sober mind, rarely or a few of us actually step into that vision in its fullness. Some of us have an anxious mind. We are overtaken and overwhelmed by the problems in our lives. The meditations and thoughts of our heart are all about anxiety and worry. Some of us have a selfish mind. We're only preoccupied with ourselves, with what we want, with what we want to achieve. Some of us have a complacent mind. We are really complacent about our lives, about the world. You know, we think we have a ton of time and that we are actually pretty good. We are okay. Some of us have a cynical mind. We're just suspicious, uh, condescending and sarcastic about all that's happening in our world. And most of us have a distracted mind. We're just caught up with the urgent, with the temporal, with the sensational. We are distracted. Now, sober-mindedness doesn't just occur in... First uh, Peter occurs all over the New Testament and a whole bunch of places speak about being of sober mind. And the term sober-minded broadly means that we do not allow ourselves to be captivated or distracted by any type of influence that will lead us away from sound judgment. It is to have a mind that is focused, that is devoted and dedicated to God and the things of His kingdom. Do not be distracted. Colossians chapter 3 Verse 1 says this, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. And so, reading from the text, the antithesis of a sober mind, as defined by Scripture, is a mind that is caught up in the trivial in the sensational and the temporal. And so the question we are led to ask ourselves is this, what aspects of our lives take up the bulk of our time, energy, 
resource and attention that can be better routed to God and His purposes? Are there vices or indulgences in your life that distract you, that numb you to God, that hinders a sober mind? For some, this call to sobriety can be very much a literal one. You know, one of the things I've been considering to start off this year, uh, Amy and I have been in talks with it. Uh, we've been feeling the Spirit leading us to do this uh, over the last month, uh, is to begin this year with a prolonged period of abstinence from any kind of drink or alcohol. Uh, now, many of you know I love my glass of red wine. I love my gin and tonic. I love a nice uh, Macallan 12. You know, I love all these things and I very much enjoy it. But I've been thinking of late that perhaps one of the ways I can lean into this vision of being spiritually sober is to posture myself in a physical, natural sobriety to lean into this vision. And, you know, I, I, I think, you know, it's not for all of us, you know, that sobriety or the pursuit of sobriety may not look like abstinence from alcohol for all of you, but nevertheless, it is still a call to sobriety. For some, it is abstinence from alcohol. For all of us, it is a call to sobriety. It's a call to rid ourselves of influences and distractions that pull us away from the things of God. And so I want to implore you, at the start of this year, consider, deeply consider your life. What areas are out of sync with God's kingdom? What areas or aspects is the Spirit calling for you to lay down as an act of consecration in pursuit of His kingdom? The next call that Peter gives us, a call to be alert. This takes me back to the Navy where I was a sea soldier. That's just a fancy term for security guard for the naval base. And one of the things that we were trained to do is to uh, be turned out in the middle of the night in our full gear. And we only had a small amount of time to get ready to get geared up and fall in downstairs. And so in our training days, I remember we would fall asleep in our full uniform with our boots on for fear that we would not make the timing. And we were alert, ready to go all the time. I think that kind of imagery is what we need to have in our hearts as it pertains to the end times. We must always be prepared. We must be end times ready. We must be ready for that day where we will stand before God. There is far too much at stake here for us to be flippant about it. It's interesting that it's Peter who says be alert. It's Peter who says be watchful, to stand guard, to not fall asleep. It's interesting that it's Peter, because we all know this, that Peter, one of the greatest failures, and I believe greatest area or moment of regret for his life, because of how often he references it in his writings, one of the greatest moments of regret for Peter is that he fell asleep when Jesus told him to be watchful and pray. Being watchful or being alert is one of the most consistent themes or instructions in the life of Jesus and in the apostles. First Peter chapter 5 says this, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. We are to be alert and sober because we have an enemy. We have an adversary. We are at war today, whether you believe it or not. We're at war against sin, the flesh, and the devil. There is evil at work in our world today that perpetuates so much of the darkness that we see around us. Now, this notion of the devil and spiritual warfare 
has become almost a relic of the past, hasn't it? It's thought of as outdated, superstitious thinking, and even sometimes we will explain it away with what we perceive to be advances in human psychology and understanding. But for Jesus, there is a devil. The devil is a really real entity. To Jesus, the devil isn't a myth. It's not a figment of imagination, something that we brought over from an ancient age of superstition. Nor is he a red cartoon character that sits on our shoulders with a pitchfork. To Jesus, the devil is an invisible but real intelligence behind much of the evil we see in our world today. A.W. Tozer once said this, Many Christians view this world as a playground rather than a battleground. Now, a chance upon this story from uh, one of Derek Prince's books. I don't know how many of you know who Derek Prince is, but he wrote the book, They Shall Expel Demons. And so this is like one of the first books I bought as a Christian because it had a killer cover and I was so interested in the topic. Derek Prince wrote of this uh, story, uh, this uh, encounter that one of his friends had in a restaurant. And the story goes, uh, she was eating a meal at this restaurant in New Orleans and then she was approached by a group of Satanists were trying to convert her to Satanism and they gave her this kind of prospectus of their plan for world domination, for their plan for how they wanted to infiltrate and influence the world into uh, the, the kingdom of darkness. And in that prospectus, it outlined this six-point uh, worldwide program that they were going to roll out uh, in time. The first point was this, that the Antichrist would manifest himself soon Second point, ministers and leaders and missionaries would fall. Third point, ministries and works of God would be destroyed. Fourth point, Christians would become complacent, want peace above all other things and seek churches that do not preach a full gospel and pastors who keep peace no matter what the sin. Point five, Christians would cease their fasting and prayer. And point six, the gifts of the Spirit would be completely ignored. There is evil at work against us, church. There is evil in our world today that seeks to advance the kingdom of darkness above the kingdom of God. And I think of that line from 2 Corinthians where Paul exhorts believers to not be ignorant of the schemes and plans of the enemy. Undoubtedly, we see turmoil all around us. And a good chunk of it is, can be attributed to human will and just human folly. But do not be ignorant. Certainly, evil the kingdom of darkness is at work among us and we are called to be alert. To recap, Peter calls for all of us to one, bear in mind that the end is near. To two, understand the times that we're living in, to be sober and cease squandering our lives away on the trivial, the temporal and the sensational. Last thing is this, to be alert, to recognize that we have an adversary, an enemy that is at work among us and then the verse crescendos. The end is near. Therefore be alert and of sober mind. And then it crescendos. So that you may pray. So that you may pray. Peter exhorts us in the midst of darkness, persecution and opposition to pray. Be sober, be alert, so that you may pray. As you see the world coming apart at it seems, do not lose hope. Do not falter. Do not just resort to complaining and throwing out your opinions. Pray. That is the exhortation from the Apostle Peter. And so that's what I would like to call and ready our church to do in 2021. To pray. To step into a greater sobriety. To have a consistent alertness and watchfulness. And to commit ourselves to deep 
earnest prayer to deep, robust intercession. I don't know how you felt as you have seen the news reports this week or the various tragedies in 2020. There was a survey done recently among pastors in Singapore and uh, this, this survey covered a multitude of areas, uh, included uh, the mental health of congregations as well as financial uh, status and health of churches. But the survey interestingly ended with this last question. And the question was this, do you believe that we are living in the end times? It ended with that question, do you believe we're living in the end times? Now I'm part of a small group of pastors, there's 30 of us, and all of us in that group all said yes. We fully believe that we are living in the end times. Matthew 24 looks less like prophecy as opposed to reality these days. But even as we observe our world heading into a perilous direction, are we then as the people of God, the church, simply to watch and sit idly by? Or has God called us to rise up to do something about it? I'm thankful that there are many in our church who have committed themselves, their lives, to a rhythm of prayer, to having consistent prayer in the session as a part of the life. And we have done teachings, and prayer isn't so much a foreign concept to us. We are very much pro-prayer as a church. But our love for us, and I believe God is taking us uh, into a deeper place of prayer. Now, I read about the life of missionary James of Frazier uh, in this uh, last week. Now, James of Frazier was a missionary to the Lisu people in China. And he tells of this story where once conducted some form of experiment with the people that he was ministering to in China. He was ministering to two groups of people, people who lived in the highlands as well as people who lived in the lowlands. And once he did some math and found that it would take him some three to five days just to travel to the highlands in winter and some two, day, two days to come back down to the lowlands. And he saw that time as time that was utterly wasted and it was really difficult and perilous for him to make that journey consistently. And so he decided to conduct a kind of experiment. He asked himself this question, what would happen if I decided to spend the time that I would have spent gathering and traveling to these people and instead prayed for them earnestly? And so he committed himself to pray extensively for these people who are living in the highlands and yet at the same time ministering physically to the people who were at the lowlands. And after the experiment concluded at the, win at the end of winter, he uh, visited these people in the highlands again, and he came to this startling discovery that the people that he couldn't spend time with, but he prayed earnestly for, were doing a whole lot better spiritually, emotionally, and mentally than the people he was ministering to in person. Those people were doing far better. They were reading the Bible a whole lot more. They were spiritually robust. They were ministering and loving each other really well. And the question we are led to ask is this. Can God do more within us and through us when we cry out to Him as opposed to our plans, our resolutions, our initiatives and our strategies? As important as they are, is prayer truly the greater work? I fully believe so. Now for us, when we talk about prayer, we talk about it in different regards. We talk about it as conversation with God, where we pray, where we have relationship with Him, where we get to know Him in an intimate manner. We also talk about prayer as calling out to God, when we have certain needs and requests, and we need breakthroughs in certain areas of life, we call out to God. But today I want to call our church to move beyond prayer 
just as a conversation to move beyond prayer as calling out to prayer as crying out to prayer as intercession on behalf of our world on behalf of people you know amy calls me andre at home all the time when she wants to talk to me she'll be like andre when she needs me to do something it might go up a pitch andre but when she cries andre I know what's up. She's just seen a cockroach and she's crying out to me to come and rescue her. And I think that's what we get to do in prayer. There's a kind of prayer, there's a kind of fervency and passion and shout of prayer that calls and demands for God's attention. So we cry out to Him for our will and for His Spirit to bring about breakthrough and deliverance in our time. It's to move us into prayer that is crying out. I wonder how many of you have seen the film Dunkirk. Uh, it's a film by Christopher Nolan and it's based on a true story, the events of Dunkirk. And in September 1939, Germany had invaded Poland and the British army was sent to support their allies in France. And when the Germans subsequently invaded France in 1940, the British army, three French armies and what remained of the Belgian army found themselves trapped near the Belgian-French border. And on May 26, the British military began to implement Operation Dynamo to evacuate these Allied forces from Dunkirk. Now, what the film does not show is this, that in a national broadcast, King George called for a national day of prayer and fasting to be held on May 26, the day before Operation Dynamo was to be launched. The king called on the people of the UK to turn back to God in a spirit of repentance and plead for divine help. And I have a picture up here, and this is a line of people just getting into Westminster Abbey, and it was said that all across the country, the nation, there were similar scenes of people rushing into churches to pray, to repent. Now, two events immediately followed after that day of prayer. A violent storm arose over the Dunkirk region, grounding the German fighter planes that had been killing thousands on the beaches. And then it said this, history notes, that a great calm descended on the channel, the like of which hadn't been seen for a generation. And this allowed the evacuation to take place. And from that point on, the British people began to refer to what happened on that day as the miracle of Dunkirk. And of course, we know through history that Hitler's failure to press on uh, an attack and captured British army on the beaches was one of his most significant military failures during the war and eventually led to his defeat. Now, I believe that there are times, ancient and modern, national and personal, where we will need a miracle, where the circumstances, or rather the means of overcoming, it is far beyond our own ability and strength. So many of us today are heartbroken by the state of our world heartbroken by what we see, we are heartbroken by this collective sense of despair, despondency, and helplessness. Frustration is boiling over, and many people just resign to hopelessness. It's other stage protests, but it eventually all goes back to normal. The anger and upheaval rarely leads to any significant and lasting change. We keep trying the same things, but keep getting the same results. But what if? What if the people of God seize on the things that need to be changed and went before the God of the universe, the God who has all power and authority, and pleaded with Him to break in, to change things, to change the world? What would happen if the people of God directly petitioned God through prayer and fasting? 
Historically, we see God's people turning to him through fasting and prayer. And he breaks in and he brings radical change. Moses' 40-day fast resulted in the revelation of the Ten Commandments. Hannah fasted and God released a prophet who would change the destiny of a nation. Esther called for a fast and her people were delivered and the enemies routed. Jesus fasted for 40 days in the wilderness and overcame the temptations that held humanity in bondage. Humanity has tried every other type of solution. But what if maybe this kind only comes out? Maybe this kind is only broken through, through prayer and fasting. And according to Peter, the most important response in light of eternity, in light of the enemy, in light of the callousness and numbness of our day is prayer. Close off your last two verses. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Ephesians 6. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep praying for God's people. So I'm calling for all of us as a church in this year, 2021, to up the ante on prayer, to up the ante of prayer. And that may look like a greater prioritization of prayer in your life, in the life of a church. We will be rolling out a whole bunch of different stuff, prayer rooms, prayer walking, prayer meetings, all that kind of stuff. But it's also for us to up the ante on our belief in prayer, to actually believe that God wants to use weak, feeble people who pray weak, feeble prayers to change the course of history, to actually believe that our prayers work and effect change in our world today. And so the first initiative I'm calling our church to would happen in a couple weeks from now, from the 22nd of January to the 24th, we are calling for our church to seek first. And so for this initiative, we are calling for our church to stand together, to commit to a consistent, unbroken period of intercession for 48 hours. It would happen from the 22nd to the 24th of January. And this will look like 48 different prayer slots that you can sign up for. We will have prayer guides that we will release in the coming weeks that you can use to pray through uh, certain prayer points, to pray for our world, for our community, for our own lives. Let us commit, church. Let's commit ourselves as a church to seek God first and foremostly to say yes, set us apart, oh God, for your purposes. May we be sober and alert. May we pray in light of the last days that His passion will become our passion, that His cause will become our cause to see His kingdom come, His will be done in our city as it is in heaven. I'll close off with one final quote and I hope that you're looking forward to that period of intercession. I'm so excited. I think the best time slots are the 3 a.m. ones. I think that's where the glory is. And so some of y'all can take the afternoon easy lunchtime ones. I'm going for the 3 a.m. I hope that some of you would join me for that. I'll read to you a last quote and this is a lengthy one, but I believe it would help frame understanding of what intercessory prayer does and the power of our prayers to shift the course of human history. Walter Wing writes this, Intercessory prayer is spiritual defiance of what is in the way of what God has promised. Intercession visualizes an alternative future to the one apparently fated by the momentum of current forces. Prayer infuses the air of a time yet to be into the suffocating atmosphere of the present. History belongs to the intercessors who believe the future into being. 
even a small number of people firmly committed to the new inevitability on which they have fixed their imaginations can decisively affect the shape the future takes. These shapers of the future are the intercessors who call out of the future the long for new present. History belongs to the intercessors who believe the future into being. If this is so, then intercession, far from being an escape from action, is a means of focusing for action and of creating action. By means of intercessions, we veritably cast fire upon the earth and trumpet the future into being. May this time of unprecedented shaking awaken in our church a time of unprecedented prayer so that we may see a move of God in our time, in our place, in our world. So let's pray even as we commit this year to the Lord. May we step into this vision. May we be awakened to intercede. May we capture what is on God's heart. May His cause be our cause. His will be our will. His cry be our cry. So let's pray together. Holy Spirit, what you stir a resolve in our community today. Lord, we pray that prayer wouldn't be the last thing in this church. Prayer wouldn't just be due diligence in this church, but prayer would be the first and foremost things, thing of our lives. Stir our hearts to pray beyond our own wants, our own needs, our own requests. But stir our hearts, O oh God, to pray your will to be done on our earth as it is in heaven. God, we pray that you will birth this resolve in our hearts for this year. We thank you for what your Spirit is doing in our community, in our lives. We lift all things to you. May you receive all God, all glory, all honour, all praise that is due your name. In your name we pray. Amen.